Well, I know I use a lot of sports analogies, and I try to kind of avoid them if and when I can. But I just couldn't help myself on this one. If you're a baseball fan, you are already familiar with the big unit, Randy Johnson. If you're not a baseball fan, let me introduce you to him. Randy Johnson is six foot ten inches tall. He's retired now. He was elected into the Hall of Fame by an overwhelming majority on the very first ballot. He is perhaps one of the top three best left-handed pitchers of all time. What made Randy Johnson especially effective was his fastball. He was clocked uh, up to 102 miles an hour. But it wasn't just his fastball and how hard he threw. It was the fact that the pitcher's mound is 60 feet, six inches from home plate. But because Randy Johnson is six foot, 10 inches tall, by the time he finished his motion and released the ball, he was releasing it from about 46 feet away from home plate. Whereas many pitchers would release from like 50 to 52 feet away. I mean, this guy had every advantage you could possibly have. He was so incredibly intimidating on the mound that if you remember the 1997 All-Star Game, my friend Pastor Dave Lewis will 100% remember this, when Larry Walker, also a Hall of Famer, was hitting 398 that year, absolutely just killing it. And he stepped into the batter's box against Randy Johnson but Larry Walker did something very interesting. He didn't step into the side of the batter's box where he normally hit from, the left side. He turned his batting helmet around and stepped into the right-hand batter's box. And everybody on both benches completely erupted. Why? Because Larry Walker didn't want to stand in the left-handed batter's box against Randy Johnson where he felt like a fastball at 102 miles an hour was coming from behind him. He turned his helmet around and went on to the other batter's box. Randy Johnson was absolutely terrifying. And while everybody laughed, including Larry Walker, by the way, Randy Johnson smirked a little bit, picked up the rosin bag and shook it and gestured for Larry Walker to get back in the batter's box in an all-star game. Man, oh man, was that a terrifying man. A Randy Johnson fastball was bad. A Randy Johnson slider, that was even worse. Because he was so tall, when he threw that breaking pitch, for a left-handed hitter, it looked like that thing was coming from behind you. And this guy that would throw fastball after fastball after fastball and just blow fastballs by people, and they would stand in the box and expect a fastball, when he released that slider, you'd see grown men tear up and just dive out of the way because it was so incredibly terrifying. Although slower, it was effective because it was unexpected. It was the last pitch you thought Randy Johnson would throw the man with the 102 mile an hour fastball. Now, I tell that very long sports story because I want you to know that in Luke chapter 19 verses 1 through 10, Luke is about to throw us a curveball. In Randy Johnson's uh, 
pitch sequence or in his uh, bag of tricks, it would be a slider, but he's about to do something completely unexpected. Uh, one after another, Luke has thrown us fastballs throughout his entire gospel. And it's all about Jesus dining with and accepting the oppressed, the beggar, the woman, children, tax collectors, sinners, the outcasts, the marginalized, one after another. He's told us stories about Jesus accepting those who were unacceptable. And all of a sudden in Luke 19, one through 10, he throws us a curveball. And it did, to the original listeners and hearers, terrify them a little bit. It shook them up. This was the last thing that they expected. Let's read it together if you have your Bibles. Luke chapter 19, verse 1. Luke writes that Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed into a sycamore tree to see him, for he, that's Jesus, was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up to Zacchaeus and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Verse 6, so Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Now, if you grew up in church like I did, this is probably a familiar story to you. Maybe not because you've read it, but because you've sung about it, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. Those who are here with me as I film this sermon are laughing and bobbing their heads along. All of a sudden, we all become Irish when we sing that song. Like, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Like, that's a horrible Irish accent. And we're going to keep that on the sermon just so you can laugh at me. I don't know why we become Irish when we sing about Zacchaeus. But because it's so familiar, in large part, we miss the point. Let's remember, this is a curveball for Luke. Why is it a curveball? One, let's talk about what we know about Zacchaeus. Luke tells us that Zacchaeus is, number one, a ruler. He's a chief tax collector. So he's not just one who's collecting taxes, but overseeing, probably on a provincial level, others who collect taxes. So he's a ruler. Number two, he is a tax collector. We've already uh, talked about this, that tax collectors were outcast, marginalized in that society. They were thieves. They charged exorbitant rates. They leveraged the violence of the Roman Empire in order to make money hand over fist. They, they were not seen in a great light. Three, Zacchaeus was rich. Did you see that? Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. So he was really effective at doing his job. Four, he was Jewish. We know that for two reasons. One, because of his name. And two, because Jesus refers to him at the end of the passage as a son of Abraham. 
So now here's what we know about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus has betrayed his own people, the Jewish people, who are being oppressed by the Roman Empire in order to align himself with the Roman Empire. And when he aligned himself with the Roman Empire, he began to leverage the violence of the Roman Empire, Pax Romana, which basically means stay in line or we'll cut your head off. And he leveraged soldiers in order to acquire for himself wealth. And so much so now he's recruiting others. That's those he's managing on a provincial level in order to do the same. Here's the first thing that I want you to know about Zacchaeus, that Zacchaeus was the personification of oppression. Zacchaeus, catch this now, was the personification of oppression. He was a betrayer of the Hebrew people. He aligned himself with an oppressive government. He was excising taxes for himself and charging 100, 200, 300, 400% on top of that in order to get rich or die trying, as 50 Cent once said. (laughs) He is the personification of oppression. And this is why Zacchaeus represents a curveball in the Gospel of Luke. This is something completely unexpected. Interestingly enough, Zacchaeus also represents a turn in our study as well. Because if you've joined us for Foodie, you know that we've been talking about Jesus dining with and accepting the oppressed, the marginalized, the outcast. That's what Luke has been doing as well. Fastball after fastball after fastball after fastball, and all of a sudden he throws us a curveball. In fact, the Zacchaeus narrative is situated within a couple of different narratives about children, a blind man, lepers, a widow, and beggars, all outcasts in that society. I mean, Luke is shouting at us loud and clear, Jesus came for the oppressed. Jesus came for the oppressed. Jesus came for the oppressed. That's the point of the Gospel of Luke. The only other narrative that appears in this context is the story of the rich young ruler, whereby a rich young man comes up to Jesus, says, how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus says, keep the commandments. Rich young ruler says, I've done all those things since I was a kid. Jesus says, tell you what, just do this. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Rich young ruler can't do that, so he goes away sad. See, here is an oppressor in that society, a rich young ruler, and he goes away from Jesus or a conversation with Jesus sad. This is what we expect from those who are oppressive in that culture and society. This is what Luke has taught us to expect. And he's taught us to expect that the oppressed are accepted and loved and embraced by Jesus. So when we see the personification of oppression enter the picture, that is Zacchaeus, we would automatically assume that Jesus would ignore him at the very best and strongly rebuke him at the very worst. And he does neither. What does he do? Jesus invites himself over. He invites himself over. And remember where we are culturally. When Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house, he means come, dine, stay the night, maybe two or three, even though he only originally intended to pass through Jericho, Luke tells us. He is aligning himself with Zacchaeus. Daryl Bach, a commentator, puts it very well. He says, in this culture, eating with a person who had ill-gotten gains made one a partner in crime. Can you believe that Jesus is doing this? 
This is completely unexpected. So unexpected, so much of a curveball that not just the Pharisees and religious leaders grumbled, but check out verse 7. It says that they all grumbled. Everybody's cheesed at Jesus now. This is not just about him ignoring the religious leaders so that he could have dinner with a widow or a leper. This is about Jesus aligning himself with the personification of oppression. Everybody's upset now. He was an equal opportunity offender, I guess. And he doesn't just dine with him, but he stays with him, as verse 5 indicates. He accepts Zacchaeus. He loves Zacchaeus. He reminds Zacchaeus that neither his wealth nor his betrayal of his own people, nor his oppressive and oppressing lifestyle, not even his short stature, excludes Zacchaeus from brotherhood with Jesus. How do I know Jesus is talking about brotherhood? How do I know he's talking about family? Well, he reminds Zacchaeus, friend, you too are a son of Abraham. Not just me, not just all those who are here, but you too are a son of Abraham. That's verse 9. Wow. <laughs> it's the last thing we would expect. Jesus accepting and including not just the oppressed, but the oppressor. And what is Zacchaeus' response to this radical acceptance? Look at verse 8. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give it to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. See, the Mosaic law stipulates that if you defraud anyone of anything, you pay them back two times. Zacchaeus says, I'm going to double that and make it four. In other words, Zacchaeus, because he is reminded of his acceptance and inclusion in the kingdom of God, radically transforms He's changed. He aligns his entire life and character and priorities with Jesus and with kingdom values. And yes, that acceptance came first. It wasn't that Zacchaeus repented and changed, therefore Jesus accepted him. In the original language in the Greek, that language is not causal. It's not Jesus saying, because you have done this, now I accept you. Rather, it's Jesus coming to his house and communicating acceptance. And Zacchaeus, as a result, saying, my whole life is now different. You know, there's just something about the power of acceptance, isn't there? And I think sometimes in the church, we're afraid. We're afraid that acceptance means affirmation. And we're afraid that acceptance is not going to lead to life transformation. It's not going to lead to discipleship. Especially when someone is oppressive, right? Especially in the case of the rich, the powerful, the betrayer. You know, in my own life, I can't think of anyone that I would think is more oppressive than white supremacists. I have two black children. <laughs> For those who leverage power, for, they abuse, they look down on others because of the color of their skin. 
They amass wealth, ill-gotten gains, as Daryl Bach says about Zacchaeus. This is the type of person Zacchaeus was. And, and see, in my opinion, they need to be ignored at best, strongly rebuked at the worst. Why? Because that's how we're going to get to transformation. Now, that's what I would do. But that's not what Daryl Davis did. You're going to see a picture up here of uh, Daryl Davis. You can tell, obviously, from the picture that Daryl Davis is a black man. He's a musician, a blues musician, and tours all over the country. When Daryl Davis was 10 years old, he was marching in a parade with his fellow Boy Scouts, and people began to throw bottles and rocks and garbage at him because of the color of his skin. Parents and guardians had to gather around young Daryl Davis in order to protect him from this violence that a number of folks in the group were inflicting upon him. Daryl Davis tells the story in his TED Talk, which I highly recommend, by the way, that this question plagued him even into his adult life. How is it that they hate me when they don't even know me? And one day as an adult, Daryl Davis chose to find out. So he asked his secretary, Mary, to phone Roger Kelly. Roger Kelly was the Grand Wizard, the national leader for the Ku Klux Klan, a very violent white supremacist group. He said, Mary, phone Roger Kelly and ask him to set up a meeting, uh, but, but don't tell him I'm, I'm black. <laughs> In his TED Talk, uh, Daryl Davis tells a story about being in a hotel room unarmed with his secretary, and he watched Roger Kelly, the Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, walk in with his armed bodyguard. And Daryl Davis' goal was not to convince Roger Kelly, but to befriend Roger Kelly. And as he tells the story, he says, I don't agree with everything Roger Kelly said that day. In fact, he made it very clear that he saw me as an inferior because of the color of my skin. You see, friends, I just walk out at that moment. But Daryl Davis said no. And the two men struck up a friendship, so much so that Daryl Davis would actually attend Ku Klux Klan rallies. Can you believe that? Look up here at the picture on the screen. I'm not saying I... <laughs> I think you should try this or anything, but gosh. So much so that over time, Daryl Davis would go to Roger Kelly's home and Roger Kelly would go to Daryl Davis' home and they would share meals together. And over time, you even in uh, some of the CNN interviews that were done about Daryl Davis and Roger Kelly's unlikely, highly unlikely friendship, Roger Kelly talks about how Daryl Davis would listen to him and accept him, reject his views for sure. But he always felt loved and listened to. And so when Roger Kelly finally became convinced that black men were not inferior to white men simply because of the color of their skin, and subsequently gave up his place and his role in the Ku Klux Klan, he gave his friend, Daryl Davis, his robe as a token of gratitude for converting him, in a sense. And all of that, years prior, it just began with acceptance, with listening, with respect. You might say, oh gosh, man, that, that worked in one case, right? That's a great story. Uh, Daryl Davis today has over 200 of those robes. You can see them up here on the screen with a few of them. 
of Ku Klux Klan members who have left the Klan and their white supremacist attitudes and their oppressive behavior simply because they were accepted and respected. Friends, I realize that um, this is maybe one of the riskiest messages I've ever preached. And I realize uh, that this little thing could go viral and everybody could think I'm a such and such or a so and so. But remember what we just looked at. Zacchaeus was the personification of oppression. He would have been equivalent to a Ku Klux Klan member in that time and place and culture and society. And Jesus does not rebuke him. Jesus does not ignore him. Jesus loves and accepts him. And as a result, Zacchaeus' entire life has changed. And, and you know, here's the thing about that type of radical grace, and this point's gonna be up here on the screen because it's always the case that radical grace always leads to radical transformation. Radical grace always leads to radical transformation. That applies to us in all kinds of ways, not the least of which is if you haven't experienced radical transformation, you likely haven't experienced radical grace. Because radical grace always leads to radical transformation. When Jesus poured out radical grace on Zacchaeus by staying with him at his home and dining with him, Zacchaeus left everything behind in order to adopt kingdom values. When Daryl Davis loved the oppressor in such an unlikely and radical gracious way that quite frankly, I personally do not have the courage to do, it led to radical transformation and he has over 200 robes and growing, by the way, to prove it. You know, grace sometimes can be easy to pour out on the oppressed the marginalized and the outcast. But what about the oppressor, the rich, the racist, the self-righteous, the mean, the rude? I'm not saying they shouldn't be stopped and prevented from doing violence to you and your family and our culture and society. But I am saying that in the eyes of Jesus, all of us need radical acceptance. All of us need radical grace, including the oppressor. And that radical grace changes lives. One more point from this passage that I think is really imperative to say. For many of you, you've tracked with us through this entire foodie series and you've heard all about the ways in which Jesus goes after the lost and is, as he says in Luke 19, uh, chapter 10, in this conversation with Zacchaeus, that's who he came to seek and to save. The funny thing is in this passage that, that Zacchaeus thinks he's seeking Jesus, doesn't he? You saw it there in verse three, how Zacchaeus was seeking to know Jesus and then he climbed a tree in order to see Jesus. So Zacchaeus thinks he's seeking Jesus, but all the while Jesus is seeking after him. The passage tells us in verse five that he looks up and he sees Zacchaeus. You know, for some of you, you, you might kind of be in that same boat. You're seeking God in some type of way. 
You're seeking a personal encounter with him. You're seeking to see him, to, to know him, to hear about his character, seeking to experience him somehow. Can I just clue you in on something? That all the while God is seeking you. And not only that, but he sovereignly situated each little detail of this situation so that he could get hold of Zacchaeus. Listen closely. Jesus walked along a path through Jericho. That path had a sycamore fig tree on it that Zacchaeus would climb in order to see Jesus. This uh, caravan of folks that were traveling with Jesus hadn't already passed the tree They were coming up on the tree. Zacchaeus had an opportunity to climb it. Sycamore trees can grow and and flourish for as long as 200 years, and they have to be many years old in order to be high enough for an individual like Zacchaeus to climb in order to see Jesus. We can safely assume that God sovereignly placed a sycamore tree in the path of this caravan so that Jesus could put his eyes on Zacchaeus. And so that his seeking after Zacchaeus came to fruition. Check this out. God has sovereignly situated this moment in time in order to see you. You think you tuned into this today. Mm -mm. God tuned you in. You think you're looking for him. He's looking for you. He has sovereignly situated this moment this emotional thing you're going through, this relational breakdown, this financial hurdle, this uh, deal with your kids, this deal with your spouse, your aging parents, all the things you're going through, all of those things God has collected and sovereignly situated in order to leverage a moment where he can look at you and say, come down, because you need to know that you're accepted. Receiving that acceptance is real easy. It's just saying, thank you, Jesus. I don't deserve it. For many of us, we line up closely, uh, more closely with Zacchaeus than we do the widow or the beggar or the child. We're the oppressor in a lot of cases. Not all, not all, but many. And yet Jesus still accepts and still loves and still transforms us such that our entire life is now resituated to align with kingdom values. And God has sovereignly situated all of those things in order to call you to himself today. And that's what he says to Zacchaeus. Today, salvation has come to this house. It's your opportunity today. If you'd like to say yes to the free gift of grace that God offers you, and experience that radical transformation that radical grace brings, I would invite you to just pray a simple prayer, uh, just like the one I'm about to pray. So let's pray together. God, I recognize my need for you. In my culture and society, I may be the oppressed, the outcast, or the marginalized, the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, like we talked about last week. And God, I may, in my culture, in many ways, align closely with Zacchaeus, the personification of oppression. And in either case, God, we all recognize our need for you. We recognize, Jesus, that we're not going to find you unless you seek us out. That we're not going to experience you unless we say yes to the invitation that you are extending 
hey, I'm coming to your house. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did on the cross. You paid the penalty for sin so that we could experience radical grace. God, not just this day, but every day, we desire to accept that grace and live in it, be transformed by it, and pour it out onto others in our world. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer for the very first time today, I'm just so grateful that you did. And I just want to extend a special welcome to God's family. I want you to know that you are forgiven, that you are loved, that you are cherished. And you're welcome. You're welcome here. If you'd like for us to follow up with you just a little bit, uh, just click that link in the chat. Uh, We'd love to connect with you, help you take your next steps as you grow on this journey of faith and find community so you can be around others who have experienced that same grace. We would just love to know so we can pray for you. As we conclude, I can't think of a better song to do so. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life.